You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome out there in podcast land. Back to Teller from Jerusalem. We continue and did conclude what we've been discussing earlier, which is to try and increase good habits and diminish bad habits. Fundamentally, what we have to learn how to do is how to be designer of our own world and not just be the consumer of it. Who's in the driver's seat? There's a great rabbinic expression, Tzadikim Yitzram B'Yodam Rishoyim B'Yad Yitzram. The righteous people, they are in the driver's seat, but the evil people, the calloused conscience, is in the driver's seat, and we're just passengers going along for the ride. One of the most effective things that we can do to build a better habit is to join to a, join a culture where our desired behavior is the standard, the default, the normal behavior. Good habits are much more achievable when you see other people doing them every single day. Wherever you turn, you see good things being done, and a person is always attracted to and will follow the behavior of those in your environment. If you're surrounded by people that are fit, it's more likely that you'll work out. If you're surrounded by people that are very studious, chances are you'll become more studious and you become more diligent. Your culture sets a standard for that which is normal. If you live in a religious neighborhood, it becomes abnormal to dress immodestly. But if you surround yourself by people who have habits that you don't seek, then it's going to impact upon yourself. Okay, I think that's pretty clear. In 1971, which is going into already the 16th year of the Vietnam War, or I think politically correct, it's called the Vietnam Conflict, Congressman Steele from Connecticut and Congressman Murphy, I believe from Illinois, made a shocking discovery on a visit to Vietnam. And their discovery shocked the entire American public. They discovered that 15% of the troops in Vietnam, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of troops, were all heroin addicts. They later learned that it was not 15%, but 20%. And this resulted in a flurry of activity in Washington. And they were figuring out what are we going to do when the troops come home and what are we going to do to wean them off the drugs. And then what happened was when the troops came home, they made a discovery which upended all accepted beliefs about addiction. They found that about 5% of those that were addicted became re-addicted to heroin. In other words, 5% of that 20%, meaning 9 out of 10 that were addicts didn't go back to addiction. What happened? It's as if their addiction was eliminated overnight. And this contradicted all prevailing thoughts regarding that the fact that addiction is permanent and it's irreversible. And what we learn from here is that if you can change radically the environment, it'll make a huge difference. In other words, in Vietnam, the soldiers were surrounded by warfare, constant stress, stress and tension, and all kinds of cues that are triggering. Other soldiers are shooting up, and they are thousands of miles from home, and the heroin is very readily accessible. But when they traveled home at thousands of miles, there were none of these cues. And the overwhelming majority, overwhelming majority dropped the habit. And this is totally the opposite of the typical drug user in America, be it in Baltimore or St. Louis or Chicago or Kansas City or Houston. So they're addicted to crack and they're sent to rehab and they get cleaned up 
And then when they return, they were totally clean when they come home. 90% of heroin users get re-addicted once they return from rehab. Why? Because they get they're exposed to all the cues of the hood and all those cues which got them addicted in the first place have not changed. So the Vietnam studies ran counter our conventional association of unhealthy behavior. Because if people are overweight, or let's say even an alcoholic or other substance abuse, all your life you're told that it's a consequence of a lack of self-control. They might even be told that's because you're a bad person. And the idea is that just a little bit of discipline would solve all of our problems, and that's very deeply embedded in our culture. But the reverse research has revealed that those people that have tremendous self-control are not all that different from those of us who are struggling. But what? But what? Disciplined people are better at structuring their lives in a way that does not require heroic willpower and major self-control. In other words, they spend less time in tempting situations. The people with the best self-control are typically those who need it and need it to use it the least. People with high self-control spend less time in tempting situations. Now, I cannot deny that perseverance and grit and willpower are essential to success. But the way to improve these qualities is not by wishing you're a more disciplined person, but by creating a more disciplined environment. To rely on just resisting temptation is a very ineffective strategy. Thus, if you're not getting work done, it would be a very wise idea to put your phone somewhere else. You know, don't even see it. Just get it out of the way. Or if you're in a noisy environment and the noise doesn't let you concentrate, move somewhere else. For habit to be successful, it has to be obvious. Another thing is, and I'm, now I'm just going to say very quickly two other principles that James Clear writes about in Atomic, Atomic Habits. A good habit has to be obvious, and also it should be attractive, and it should also be satisfying. The inverse is, if you have a bad habit, you have to make it invisible and make it unattractive, make it unsatisfying. Simple example. Everyone, everyone, but everyone loves these mango strips that are so sugary and tasty, and we trick ourselves into thinking it's not sugar because it looks like a fruit. So what you want to do is, and this I actually heard from A.J. Jacobs, you want to do is put it up in a closet way all the way on top where you can't get to it and put it in one bag and then another twister and another bag and another twister and another twister. That's a schlep till you're going to climb on, the, on a ladder and climb up to the cabinet and take it down. It's really not worth it. So that's structuring the environment in your interest. And now let's try and actualize on a personal level. A personal example would be religious Jews maybe all religious people, live lives that are really filled with restrictions and enormous discipline. So what I can't understand, there's so much discipline, discipline in what we eat, how we spend our money, what we're allowed to look at. Why is it so many people that are religious are overweight? They're not showing restraint with a bad habit. And I think, after giving this a little bit of thought, there is no way that a kosher Jew will allow non-kosher food into their home. Nor will they go into a non-kosher restaurant, even if to buy a soft drink, which clearly is kosher. But what happens is, once food is in the home which is kosher, 
there is no effort to make it invisible, no effort to make it difficult or unsatisfying. They don't put it up in the closet and tie it in bags. You can't get to it. The day that chocolate becomes non-kosher, I lose 10 pounds. The day that Pashka's candy is no longer kosher, I lose 20 pounds. That's how we can structure our environment. Or another example. I can't believe a religious person would want to watch on their would watch on their computer images that are inappropriate to watch or receive them in the mail or go to a theater and watch a movie that's inappropriate. But why is it, and I'm one who travels a lot, why is it on flights you see people who are religious just drooling in front of the screen? And the answer could be that when it's easy and obvious, I mean, in front of your friends, in front of your peers, in front of your family, you're not going to do something which is inappropriate. But when you're sitting in an environment where it's people you do not know, and you don't even have to get out of your chair, and I'm not talking about watching 101 Dalmatians or Mary Poppins, or a National Geographic special. I'm talking about inappropriate things. That basically uh, is, if you don't have that self-discipline, you put yourself in an environment where there's no control. And the environment becomes very tempting. And in such an instance, many, many people cave. But if you could structure an environment so that it wouldn't be that way, then you wouldn't have the temptations, and there wouldn't be that design, there wouldn't be that ability to cave so easily. So part of the structuring the environment would be make a scorecard and you point and you call. Say out loud the actions you're going to do and by saying it becomes more real. You have a plate of brownies in the kitchen or if you wish for a variety's sake you have a plate of blondies in the kitchen. So say out loud I'm going to eat these brownies but I don't need them. Eating them will cause me to gain weight and it will hurt my health. I actually like to say this in a sonorous voice, the voice of heaven. Eating these brownies is going to damage you. Hearing the consequences spoken out loud makes the consequences seem more real. It adds weight to the action. That's a funny pun. It adds weight to the action. Rather allowing yourself to slip into an old routine, and uh, like I said, I try and do it in a sonorous voice. If you plan beforehand, and as we've already said, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. That's called an implementation intention. And the best way to do this is to decide when and where you're going to do something. As we said earlier, to say I'm going to exercise every day will not get you very far. But if you say 10 minutes before lunch, I'm going to do 10, hour, 10 minutes of exercise, that's a place and a, and a, and a that's a place and an activity, and that's concretion. And as we said in our last episode, things work so much better when they're specific. That's why it's more effective to say, don't do unto others, than rather say, do unto others. I don't want to be hurt, and I don't want to be insulted, and I don't want to be shamed, and I don't want to be bullied. Therefore, I have to be very careful not to do this to someone else. As the Torah repeats again and again, remember that you were strangers in the land, and make sure you take care of the strangers, the orphans, and the widows, because you know what it's like to suffer. And that's why, in society, on a highway, they're never telling you, be a good driver. Everybody thinks they're a good driver. They're telling you is, don't speed. Alcohol kills. They're being specific. It's the negative that will result in positive activity. And here's an, uh, an example that we can relate to. The French philosopher Denis Diderot 
who lived his life in poverty, that all changed in 1765. His daughter was about to wed, and he could not afford the wedding. But he was a well-known person. He was the co-founder of Encyclopedia, and he was also a writer for it. And Catherine the Great from Russia, the Empress of Russia, she felt bad for Diderot. And she was a book lover, and so she had respect for Diderot. And to help him out, she bought his uh, library for 1,000 sterling. That's more than $150,000 in today's money. Now, I feel very guilty implying anything positive about Catherine the Great. She was irredeemably promiscuous, and she was literally guilty of regicide with her own husband. So she was greatly terrible, but nothing great about her. In any event, having what today's equivalent would be $150,000, that was more than enough for Diderot. Diderot went out and paid for his daughter's wedding, and with the change left over, he bought himself a stunning scarlet robe. However, that robe was so stunning and so beautiful, everything he owned seemed to pale next to it. So he upgraded his wardrobe, and then his home, and then his furnishings. And it was like falling dominoes. One purchase led to another. So his behavior, that's very common behavior, it's known as the Diderot effect. Or as we call it in my family, there was a book my kids read when they were little, called It All Started With a Doormat. Meaning, a poor family, they were happy, everything was good, everybody was content. And one day they bought a nice new doormat. They said, a new doormat? You can't have such a lousy door next to a new doormat, so they got a new door. Then the entranceway, pretty shabby, so they fixed up the entranceway. Then the living room, come on, we need to have new carpet in the living room, you have to have a better sofa. And then it all started with the doormat. It all started with the doormat. So what we can do is take this common syndrome, the Diderot effect, and use it for our own advantage. If we want to institute a new habit, what we can do is do habit stacking. Have one thing go to another. Now, we're used to it. You buy yourself a dress, and once you get the dress, you need to have earrings that match the dress. Then you need high heels that match the dress, and one thing leads to another. So we can do this for the good. Take a good habit, and once it's established, you've passed that friction point, and it's your default, then stack onto this, another good habit. I hate to give myself an example, but uh, for, for good reason, obviously. But here's one thing which I think we've mastered. Uh, I try in the afternoon, I go into the kitchen, I go out in the afternoon, so I always, before I leave, I take out the garbage. Okay, and it's an amazing thing. A woman can cook all day long. She's in the kitchen all day, working and sweating, and then the husband takes out the garbage and he thinks, look how much I've done. He did one little thing and look what I... So I take out the garbage. Then I realize that I can habit stack. I'm already going anyways to take the garbage. So I try. When I go into the kitchen, I always wash out one pot. So I'm stacking. And you can keep on stacking and stacking and stacking. Uh, let's give some more examples. You uh, want to eat in a healthy way? So you can habit stack. First thing you do is you reach for the veggies. If there's a choice for a smaller plate, go for a smaller plate. Uh, for a habit to be adopted, it has to be obvious. Everyone drinks Coke because it's ubiquitous. Wherever you go, it's always on the end cap. And the good news is, is you don't have to be a victim to your environment. You can also be the architect of the environment.
instead of putting on the table or having brownies and you're, there's no way you can walk by, even if you weren't thinking of eating, you have to eat them. So what do you do? Put on the table celery, carrots, apples, or take the, the bad food, which you don't need, and then tie it up and put it up, you know, all the way on top of the cabinet. And we can use habit stacking to our advantage. Another example of this, you know, if it becomes ubiquitous where you see it, in the supermarket where they have these end caps, they always put things at eye level where they're going to make the greatest profit. You see those, so that's what you grab first. The things which are not big profit makers for them are much harder to find. They'll put the sugary cereals at low level, you know, at, at calf level, at somewhere between the ankle and the calf, because that's what kids see, and they want is sugary cereals. And also in supermarkets, they also have the, the dairy all the way at the end of the supermarket. It's in the refrigeration at the end wall. Why is that? Because you have to trek all the way out there. So after climbing and running through 14 football fields to get to the dairy, you've passed so many aisles, so many things you do not need, but you pass them, you see them, you pick them up. Then by the time you finally make it back to the checkout counter, you're much, all of a sudden you're hungry, and then you're tempted. At the checkout counter is all the candy. All this is architected, you know, it's done with per perfect architecture to make you be a victim. But we don't have to be victim to this. We can structure our own architecture. Maybe the microphone is picking up some rain in the background. In Jerusalem, we're always very pleased when we hear that pitter-patter of rain. Uh, okay, I've given some examples. Let me conclude by a quotation from Pastor Boardman. It's very interesting. Pastor Boardman is probably best remembered for this quotation, which is attributed to him, and it goes like this. The law of the harvest is to reap more than you sow. Sow an act, and you reap a habit. Sow a habit, and you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit TellerFromJerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller From Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to TellerFromJerusalem.com.